Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jennifer Crone, the Acting Intelligence Community Chief Information Officer, and I should say the outgoing acting CIO for m- multiple reasons. So let's start with the first reason you're moving. So talk about why you're leaving and where you're going. In fact, I am not leaving ODNI or the IC, but I am moving to Australia for the next three years. I will, that this is something that has been planned for a while since before Dr. Cook, the previous ICCIO, had left. My husband has been living in Australia in Canberra since last spring. I will continue to serve the IC, both the USIC and the Australian IC, as I'm over there for the next about three years. The Australians have launched a couple of initiatives that are somewhat parallel to some of the things we've been doing here. They are standing up a new Office of National Intelligence, somewhat analogous to ROD&I, and they're trying to improve information sharing and integration across their entire national security establishment, similar to what we have done with iSight in many ways. So among the things I'm going to be doing while I'm there is advising the Australians on standing up ODNI on better sharing information and integrating across organizational boundaries. And this is a, an effort that will benefit, obviously, both the Australians but also the U.S., They are among our closest and most reliable allies to the extent that we can help them ensure that they're able to best partner with us and, of course, to appropriately secure and safeguard the data that we share with them. That rebounds to all of our benefits. So uh, I'll be working on whatever anyone needs me to do on there. As you know, in iSight, we say data is an IC asset. I've been saying while I'm on detail to Australia, I will be an IC asset. So I've been in touch with uh, all of the different agencies, and um, I will be there to support the USIC in any way that I can be. I'll also be supporting the Allied System for Geospatial Intelligence specifically. So interesting. So it's, so it's interesting. It's almost like usually you hear details. Someone goes from NGA to CIA or, or from FBI to DIA, but you're actually going country to country detail. Did this just come up or was it kind of a confluence of issues where your husband moved, it, the commute's a bit much, we know that. How did it come together? Well, I have to express my appreciation for ODNI and for NGA who are actually sponsoring. It is a joint duty. Technically, NGA will be my sponsor overseas because ODNI is not very much set up for sending people overseas. Uh, so I appreciate the leadership of both agencies for all the support that they've been giving me to make this happen. Uh, yes, my husband has been living there. That is a long commute. But as it turns out, when we were making the decision of whether he would take that job or not, we had to make sure it was something where we would both be able to continue to serve. And it was in spending time talking to actually my one of my counterparts sort of functionally the CIO of Australia. When he was here in the winter and spring, we spent a lot of time talking about what he was doing, and it led me to think about ways in which I might be able to to be of value there. And so when my husband decided to accept that job, it was a decision we made together where I was really excited about what I would be able to do for the U.S. intelligence community and national security apparatus as well as for the Australians by serving there for several years. Fascinating opportunity. I think people, when they think about government, don't realize those type of opportunities exist. So uh, I guess kudos to you for, for seeking that out and finding it or them finding you, I guess. Your timing is almost perfect as well because uh, obviously the White House has announced their intent to appoint a new ODNI or intelligence community, I should say, CIO. So did that play into it or were you always looking to move to your detail starting in September of this year anyways? That had been the plan. 
In fact, I had essentially agreed to stay on to ensure that EyeSight continued to move forward aggressively, that uh, there was no let up, and that we had that continuity after Dr. Cook had left and before we had the opportunity to have the new ICCIO identified as the person who will be appointed. So that had been the plan, and I, I couldn't be more pleased with the selection of my friend and colleague, John Sherman. He's a great choice for ICCIO. He's got tremendous experience, uh, leadership, enthusiasm. He and I have been uh, spending a lot of time together, a lot of quality time. Uh, recently, I'm spending sending him lots of material. He's spending time over here. While he has not officially been appointed yet, we are making sure that he is getting smart on all of the issues and ensuring that he will be able to hit the ground running. So then I have to ask, what, what kind of advice are you giving him? What, what kind of uh, We're going to talk about other priorities, but generally speaking, uh, he's not new to the intelligence community. He's been with the CIA. He's worked at NGA. But at the same time, it's a much different view when you're the ICCIO versus working within one of the components. So what have you been telling him so far? I've been making sure that he knows everything that we've been working on, what we're doing, and why we've been doing it. So John knows from his experience, he's been serving on the EyeSight Mission User Group. He has served for some years. So he is familiar, and he knows that the IC has not let up in charging forward on EyeSight over the last few months and years. He knows that the commitment from the entire CIO community is stronger than ever, as well as from the agency deputies, and that's because the need for these changes is as potent as it's ever been. So I've been talking to him specifically about the initiatives that we've had underway, sort of where we are in the movie. And I, I understand it, and I expect that John, um, and working in partnership with Sue Gordon, our new principal deputy DNI, who is an incredibly powerful voice and supporter of EyeSight, I expect that they're going to have all kinds of fresh new ideas for ICCIO and for EyeSight. My goal is to make sure he knows where we are, what we've been doing, what has worked and not, and why we're doing it and all the atmospherics in history, so he can start building from that foundation. Some of what I've been talking to him about as well is explaining that the most important variable in terms of his success is going to be his partnerships and relationships. So ensuring that he is fully lashed up with all of the agency and element CIOs. He's already begun reaching out to all of those incredibly important partners. Within ODNI and uh, across the IC, our colleagues who work in acquisition, requirements and costing, budget, civil liberties and privacy, uh, working with our congressional oversight staffers, with the agency deputies, with industry partners. So John is uh, terrific at collaboration. He's got experience across agencies as well as working on interagency groups. So I think he's natural for this. He understands that what we're trying to accomplish in ICCIO, including but not limited to eyesight, is a team effort. I've told him he's inheriting an outstanding staff in ICCIO and just an exceptional team of ICCIOs. The agency CIOs work together to do what's best for the IC in a way that I've almost never seen an interagency group come together to really think corporately. What I've really been emphasizing as well is when it comes to eyesight, you need to think of it, I think, as a, its own sort of agile development. So we have the strategic objectives that we'd laid out some years ago, which were improve integration and information sharing, secure and safeguard the enterprise, and to operate more efficiently. Those are as valid as, the, as ever. We've also had some shared principles that we've all agreed to, that data is an IC asset, that we can tag the data and tag the people to secure our data, and that we should do in common what is commonly done. So those are all the things that we need to hew to, but we need to be agile and flexible when we think about how best to pursue them. 
some of the ways when eyesight was first developed in 2012, some of the ways we thought we were going to achieve those objectives, that's not necessarily how it's working anymore. Technology has advanced in our understanding of how the IC works. We've never really done this before. And so we need to be very flexible and open-minded on how we achieve our objectives, but being very single-minded in terms of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And I think what, how I'm trying to set up, help set up John for his success is uh, that he should learn from our past but not be bound to it. I think in some cases, some of the things that may have been tried earlier on, maybe they were just ahead of their time. So he, I just want to make sure he's got a solid foundation, and I think he, working in partnership with Sue and with the agency CIOs, is going to do a fantastic job. All right, I think that's terrific advice. I think that when you look at eyesight, and we'll get more into those details in a little bit during the program, but it's the priority for the intelligence community when it comes to the technology side of the house, and, and I think getting him involved even more is, is obviously important. Before we do this and take a quick break, uh, who's going to replace you? Do, you? do you know if you have a replacement, a, a deputy CIO yet? I am not at liberty to discuss that today. Fair enough. That means I, I guess that we'll be looking forward to that news when, when, when it's appropriate. All right, let's take a quick break. My guest is Jennifer Crone, the outgoing Acting Chief Information Officer of the Intelligence Community. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jason Miller. My guest is Jennifer Crone, the Acting CIO of the Intelligence Community, and I should say the outgoing Acting CIO. Jennifer, we talked a lot about your uh, reasons for leaving, the exciting opportunity in Australia. When I looked at your bio a little bit and, and realized that you've had, a, obviously, a 20-year career in government so far, at least, uh, it's interesting. I did not use, know you started at OMB, and then you obviously made your way to the intelligence community and now the CIO's perspective. So talk a little bit about your career a little bit and, and how things have changed, but also the perspective you, were, you have brought to this role as, as both acting CIO but also deputy CIO. Yes, I actually just hit my 20 years in uh, federal service, and eight of the first years were at OMB. I was a program examiner. I started out working in education policy. That was what I had done my undergraduate work in and my master in public policy and education policy, so it just goes to show you do not know where your career may lead. At OMB after 9-11, I had switched focuses from education policy. I became the program examiner for the Coast Guard and in that way was involved in the original stand-up of the Department of Homeland Security. I then became the examiner for the FBI, and that was at, still at OMB, and that was at about the time that the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004 created ODNI. Working with the FBI from OMB, I saw so much interesting work happening, and I really believed in the creation of ODNI. It seemed like a truly honest effort to identify what had gone wrong on 9-11 and to try to address that not just moving boxes around an org chart to make it look like we were doing something, but really thinking about what went wrong and what we could do in order to make sure it didn't happen again. And so I feel like throughout the uh, almost 12 years I have been at ODNI, I've been in various ways involved in efforts to do that. And nothing more, I think, impactful than what we're trying to do now in terms of bringing the community together to be better integrated and to share information. I think there's nothing we can do that would better break down the silos between agencies and IC elements and succeeding in eyesight. You had asked about uh, what perspective uh, having been. So I was at the Office of Management and Budget where our roles are to oversee agencies. At OMB, you tend to be, they tend to hire folks fairly straight out of 
grad school, and you are then charged with overseeing huge agencies, very complicated, a lot of money, a lot of policy issues, and it's your job to make decisions about them, despite your not necessarily being an expert in those areas. So a couple of the things that I learned from that experience of having been on the oversight side that I really tried to bring to my work at ODNI and in ICCIO is first the, the importance of being able to convey complex and technical information to people who aren't experts in your field but do have influence over your mission area. So if you can't explain what, that, what you're trying to do in very clear and compelling terms, your budget or your policy request could be at risk. This is an issue across the IC and the USG, that we've got these incredibly savvy, expert, technical folks. And if they can't, if we're not able to have their ideas explained to the people who are making big policy and management and budget decisions in a way that's clear and makes visible the value, then those things could be at risk. And I learned this at, at OMB when I would have folks from, at first, education, then Coast Guard, FBI, Department of Justice. I wasn't an expert in their areas, but if they weren't able to explain their technical aspects to me in a way that I could get, then they might not be able to, I might not be able to support them the way that I wanted to. And similarly, something I really learned the importance of is you have to prioritize your requirements. If everything is a top priority, nothing is a top priority. So, for example, when I was the Coast Guard examiner at OMB, the Coast Guard would come in every year with a list of everything that they needed to do, all the new ships that they needed and all the new planes and the new activities they had to be embarking on. And it was incredibly powerful and compelling reasons that they would have for doing all of these. But there simply wasn't enough money for all of it. And it was my job as the OMB examiner to determine which things we did and we didn't. The Coast Guard commandant and the folks there, they know a lot more about this than I do. If they tell me what's most important, I can make sure those things are the things that get done. If they tell me that everything is equally important and nothing can be cut, then all they're doing is abrogating their responsibility and leaving up to someone less informed to decide what actually happens with your program. So that's something I try to emphasize to folks here. You need to ruthlessly prioritize and you need to be able to explain what you're doing in plain English terms so that the people who, the very smart people who simply aren't experts in your field are able to make informed judgments. Sometimes that is lost for CIOs is to be able to explain it. You hear all the time where CIO will say to somebody, well, if you don't do this, this, and this in the technical way, then we're going to be at risk. And they kind of look at you cross-eyed and go, I have no idea what you just said, So, but okay. So transferring that into the CIO world, has that been easy for you? Because the transition, while not new, your background is not technology. You didn't go to school and get a master's in information sciences, as far as I know. And education policy is a whole lot different than intelligence. So, I mean, when you jumped into this, are you surprised to be in the CIO seat? I was stunned to be in the ICCIO seat. This is not not something I had ever imagined. Uh, it's been an incredible opportunity, but it's not something in a million years I would have pictured because I, I do not have a, a technological background at all. I think, again, going back to my OMB background, something that I learned is how you can ask the right questions and to rely on the people who are experts and then sort of go back to them, here is what I hear you saying, and always thinking about the so what. When it comes to the IC and the, the tech world, You'll notice that a lot of the CIOs right now, some of them have very, very strong IT backgrounds. Not all of them do. 
And that's because a lot of the hardest things that we're trying to do in tech right now aren't about the technology itself. We have brilliant people who know how to do the technology. The issues that are truly intractable tend to be more along the lines of policy and engagement with mission, acquisition. Really, it's about changing the culture. The technology is not the hardest part, or it is hard, but we know how to do it. I think a problem, a challenge that we have not only across the IC, but the entire US government is this perceived divide between tech and, or, and especially IT, and the rest of mission and the rest of users. There's still too much of this feeling that IT is something that happens in like the back rooms, and if you're doing real mission, it's not something you need to know about. And the way technology is moving, it underpins everything we do. And what, what that does at the same time, it means agency CIOs aren't a, a monolith controlling all the IT. It is embedded, it's very hard to separate what is just a user and what's a developer. So it's, we really need to continue to close that gap between mission and IT. I think it helps to have people with mission backgrounds in IT roles and vice versa so that we understand how to communicate that back. So often, like, my technical experts will provide me some information and I'll sort of read through it and ask some questions. They'll say, let me say this back to you in my very basic terms and then you tell me if that's, if that's right or if it's right enough. And then I can then go and bring that to the agency deputies or to the DNI. I think that point you make about the divide is great. And it's also a great segue to the next part of our conversation, which really focuses on the, the changing view of the IC community or when it comes to technology and that collaboration perspective. Do you feel like that divide is getting smaller and smaller? And especially because of programs like iSight, which we'll get to in a sec, but just talk broadly about what the, maybe some of the changes you've seen over the last eight to 10 years in terms of technology and collaboration within the IC. I think just the idea that there is one IC community, that is new, really, in the last 10, 12 years. Uh, when I first joined, I, I was not in the IC before there was an ODNI. And uh, if I can tell a little story, when I first came on board, I took a class that was sort of an introduction, uh, not really an introduction to the IC, it was for uh, GS13s to 15s as a chance, one of the first opportunities perhaps they had had to be in an interagency group learning. And the first day they said, okay, how many people here think of themselves as members of the IC, sort of as part of the community rather than a particular agency? So I put my hand right up proudly because, you know, what I knew about the IC is having been involved in writing the ERTPA and reading the 9-11 Commission Report. And I looked around and I was the only person in the room with my hand up. There just wasn't that view that we were one community. So I think we have come a long way on that. I think one of the things outside the world of tech, one of the things that's really been helping with that evolution is the joint duty program. The idea that in order to be promoted in the IC, you need to have served a significant amount of time at an agency outside your home, that's been transforming how people, now seniors across the IC, the perspective that they have of the that their agency has a role to play in a larger ecosystem. And I see that happening every day. I'm sitting in, say, deputies committee meetings with agency deputies. I'm looking around the room, and almost everybody in there I know from having served at a different, that when they were serving a different agency or at ODNI. So I think that's been incredibly powerful. And what I'll say is I think eyesight is really driving culture change. It's not only that eyesight is making it easier and will, especially in the future, make it easier for us 
literally to share information to be more integrated. But I think just the way that we've been, we've come together to work on it is helping to change the overall culture beyond IT. It's helping us um, more see ourselves as and being able to speak as one enterprise, to act corporately, to make decisions based not just on the best interests of our own agency, but of the IC. You know, we've accepted these principles that data is an IC asset. Data doesn't just belong to the agency that collected it, but to everyone in the IC who has the appropriate clearances and need to know and training. And we've agreed that we need to do in common what is commonly done. So increasingly, we are thinking like an enterprise, we're acting like an enterprise, and that's got spillover beyond IT. That's one of the most exciting and important aspects of eyesight, I think, in the long run. One of the challenges is we're still not really set up to act corporately. We still have all of our policies and regulations and processes are really set up agency by agency. So that's something that takes a long time to overcome. These are all small steps, and I think you have to start somewhere, and the culture is, as you said, the hardest piece to change. So really you start with the easier side, which, believe it or not, is probably the technology is to say, well, if we can all get on one system or one on platform, and then from there the next step is to get us to one system and from there to get us to one view of that system. So let's talk about eyesight because you, you set it up well. Uh, what is the latest? I know we've, we've uh, Federal News Radio has covered it quite a bit over, over the last you know, four or five years. Uh, things have been, and I'll call it quiet from our perspective to coverage, meaning you guys maybe haven't been out and about talking or making new announcements, but I know progress is being made, so give us a status update. We've been very fortunate to have strong support from Director Coates, and especially now that um, Principal Deputy Sue Gordon is on board. She is uh, just a firecracker, hugely invested in eyesight. She's been making very clear to leaders across the IC and to everyone within ODNI that there's no topic that she thinks is more critical to the future of the IC than eyesight and seeing that succeed. Uh, as it happens yesterday, I met with Director Coates along with uh, John Sherman, who will soon be on board, hopefully, as the ICCIO, and he reiterated to us, and, and thanking us for our service, how vital this effort is and how much he knows that uh, we need to pursue this. So where we are, we and we have continued to make tremendous progress over the last few months, where we are in the movie is that those core infrastructure services are largely built. So as you know, and Federal News Radio has widely covered, the idea of eyesight is that for the 17 different elements of the IC, instead of each of them having its own entirely separate set of IT platforms and systems, we go to a shared services model where one or two agencies part in partnership with industry provide a modernized vehicle that everybody is then available to all of the other agencies. So over the last few years, we really have done a terrific job of getting those infrastructure services built. Where we are now is we're focusing on making them more widely available and easy to use and focusing on migration and adoption of those services. All right, let's take a quick break. My guest is Jennifer Crone, the outgoing Acting Chief Information Officer of the Intelligence Community. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jason Miller. My guest is Jennifer Crone, the acting CIO of the intelligence community, and I should say the outgoing acting CIO. So let's talk about the core infrastructure. I know we have the desktop, we have the cloud, 
So walk me through maybe a little bit more about each of those areas and where you're at. For instance, I'm talking to other CIOs, for instance, at DIA or at NGA, and, and they would give us kind of an update of how many people are using or how many people have migrated. Can you give us some high-level sense of, where you're at, of what's happening? What I'll do is I'll talk about where we are, and then uh, what I think is the most exciting part is what we're doing to promote and accelerate adoption and migration over the next couple of months and years. So depending on how you count, there's about 10 of the core infrastructure Infrastructure services. To one degree or another, all of them are stood up now. They are extant and uh, being used across the community. What we're really focusing on now is just having them be available is not enough. They need to be easy to use. They need to be uh, easy to transition to. They need to be widely available. So that's where really we need to put all of our attention. So in terms of the cloud, we have the two core services, commercial cloud services and the government cloud. So they have amazing capabilities that we've got some mission success stories. They're enabling us to do things we could with mission that we have never been able to do before. We haven't yet been able to have that happen at scale, I would say. It's not necessarily widespread all across the community. So there's a few things we're doing. First, we're focusing on a handful of big programs and systems and migrating those to the cloud, both to demonstrate that we really can uh, move large things to the cloud to gain the benefits in terms of the mission outcomes, the effectiveness and the efficiency, but also to test out the services, to see what is it that they aren't able to do great yet so that we can make the changes so that the next batch of things that we go to migrate, it's even easier and we reap greater benefits. We're also focusing on how to ensure that the GovCloud and commercial cloud services are fully interoperable. They serve very distinct and complementary roles, and you get incredible mission benefits when you're able to leverage the best of both of them. And we want to make sure that that's something that the users are able to take advantage of. There is, as you mentioned, the common desktop. We had had the phase one pilot that involved DIA, NGA, and uh, some of the other smaller pieces of elements. Right now we are looking towards phase two, which would bring more agencies and eventually the whole IC onto the concept of desktop as a service. This is one of those examples I had mentioned before about how we need to be agile, keeping in mind what our objectives are and not getting hung up on how we thought we were going to do that. So at in the beginning we thought the only way that we could all sort of have what we wanted to do with desktop, we have three goals. We want to be interoperable so that when you log on, it's very easy to collaborate with people across the IC, no matter what agency they're in. They want it to be mobile so that whether you are logging on here at our complex in Bethesda or in Kabul or in Canberra, you can see all of your data, you can see all of your settings, everything's right where it should be. And then finally, and most importantly, we wanted our desktops to be secure, to know that folks were only seeing what they were supposed to see and that we had control over our endpoints. So those are our strategic objectives. We thought that the only way that we were ever going to get there is by having one desktop service that was available, the same corporate solution that was available to everybody. What we're finding is that might not be the quickest way to achieve our objectives all the time. So for some agencies, they may be able to achieve our goals of interoperability, mobility, and security, not by going in on one corporate vendor-provided solution, but on another solution. Again, the important thing is to keep in mind what we're trying to achieve and what's the best way to achieve that and not getting too stuck on how we thought some years ago was going to be the best way to do it. And for, for example, some of the things we thought we were going to procure through hardware are now available more in software, which makes it more agile as well. 
So for desktop, we are moving forward with getting toward interoperability, mobility, and security, and we've made great strides in that. A lot of the, oh, the app small is something that is very uh, visible, widely used, and available to everybody in the IC. And that includes both the area where you can have access to a, a wide variety of applications, but also a common development environment. And that's been really exciting to see what's been happening there. A lot of the iSight services are things that people are benefiting from all day, every day, and they just don't realize it because it's things that make their, just make, uh, their security um, at a higher level or that help make, um, for example, messages be transported more efficiently. And these are not things that your everyday user will realize that they're benefiting from, th from. things like the Security Coordination Center, identification and authentication and authorization services. So a number of our services are there, they're working well, and uh, if, if people don't notice them, sometimes that means that they are working very well. So let me back up, because uh, I want to pull the string on one thing you said about the initial thought, and maybe in 2012, was the IC would do things one way, and now here we are, 2017, and, and maybe that has to get relooked at. And as you said, maybe there's multiple paths to the same end goal, which is, I think, refreshing because a lot of CIOs tend to get down a path and say, "No, that's the only path." So it sounds to me like you guys have seen multiple paths to get to the same end goal. Is that because of the change in technology, or did once you kind of got underneath the hood, you realize, "Wow, that's a lot harder." to get that one desktop that's common to everyone? I think it's both. I think there are examples where of both of that ha those happening. So in some cases, there were things that we thought that we would be procuring through desktop that may be available through software, so that's technological development. In some cases, it was that we didn't realize how complicated something was or that there was another way to get there. We really had never done anything like this before, and so it makes sense that it's a, a learning opportunity. And I think what's driving, I know, what has driven a lot of the changes we want to make over the next few months and years, what we're engaged with right now, is focusing on the mission users. So what we absolutely did not want to have happen with EyeSight, what has happened too often in federal IT, is that users say they need something, IT goes off for a few years and builds it, and when they come back, it may or may not look like what was needed. So we've been really trying to stay very closely latched up with our mission users. I am not interested in forcing anybody onto EyeSight services. I want to show them the benefits, have them try it, and if they say it doesn't work for them, tell me why so I can fix what's wrong. And that's really what's been going on that's driven some of the changes that we're looking to make. So, for example, we realize that we need to make our services broadly available. Uh, and when I say that, I mean both geographically and in terms of domains. So when we started out thinking about EyeSight, we were thinking mostly about the TS-SCI fabric as opposed to secret or unclass because that's what we in the IC own and because we could sort of put our arms around it. And we are also thinking primarily about things CONUS and, and particularly within the Washington metropolitan area specifically. Then as we started to have the services available and asking agencies, okay, how come you're not jumping on this for this program or that program? Some of what we were getting back was, well, this is great, but it's only great for people within the Beltway who are on the high side, and that's not most of our customers or our users or the folks who we need to partner with. And so right now we're engaged in building out plans for a multi-fabric initiative to look at are there eyesight-like shared services that we need to make available at the secret and unclassified level. And so secret C2S, a secret version of commercial cloud services, that's going to launch in November. And we're looking at what other services like eyesight we might need to make available 
to serve our customers, our partners, and our users on the secret and unclassed sides. We have our hands full as well, uh, building out TS, SCI, but we, we can't think that that's going to solve our problems. At the same time, we've realized sometimes the reason that agencies couldn't adopt a certain service for a certain program was because the availability wasn't there for out west or overseas. And we need to be able to serve globally all of our customers and our users. So now we're looking at how do we make those services available around the world. So these are examples of sort of the ways that we built what we thought we needed and then we got, we went to the users and said, not you must take this, whether you like it or not, but tell us why you're not jumping at this, because we know it's got incredible capability. What's keeping you so that we can fix that and make it a more enticing opportunity for them? One of the things you, you got my attention, I have to admit, you talked about in November, potentially launching the cloud on the secret level. So just let's be clear, currently the cloud that's run by NSA, for example, is one of the providers underneath the uh, ISA program, is the top secret level. So it's the next level down, if you will. Do I have that right? So the secret C2S cloud that we're launching in November is um, analogous to commercial cloud services, which CIA has been uh, the service provider for. So it's the equivalent of C2S on the high side, now available on the secret side. So if you have this CIA cloud, why do you need this other cloud? Can't they just partition it off to say, okay, we're going to use this for the, the secret level? Like, what's the difference, I guess, is what I'm asking? The difference between the high side and the secret side? Yeah. So the high side is top secret? or is, yeah, is there TSSCI, top secret, okay. SCI. So it's only available on computers that are TSSCI level. And so a lot of our users, especially in what we call the Agile 12, the military services and the agencies that are not part of the, what we call the Big Five and the IC, they don't live on the high side, as we call it. They live on the secret side. And so they were not able to take advantage of these capabilities. And this was really spearheaded by NGA and NRO working in uh, partnership with CIA to make this opportunity available. All right. That was exactly what I was looking for, because it wasn't quite clear if if there's already a commercial cloud that's on the high side, but you need the next level down, is this also going to be run by the CIA or is this going to be run by, since it's November, any kind of acquisition strategy? Any, it's all must be in, in, in process because here we are, it's, it's September, so it, you're not going to put an acquisition out and make an award in the meantime, I, I imagine. It's all part of the same contract. Excellent. A lot going on with EyeSight. Let me switch gears. Uh, John Sherman, we talked about him several times. What other priorities are you leaving for him when, when you stack up your paperwork and, and say, here's the big one that's EyeSight? What are some other the little stacks that he's going to have to read through as well the, for initiatives? Yes, ICCIO and the agency CIOs have a number of responsibilities beyond EyeSight. Uh, as you know, the uh, EyeSight is really referring to the shared services aspect of our IT uh, but we are responsible for the entire information enterprise for the IC. And some of the greatest responsibilities that John knows he's inheriting are first the security and safeguarding responsibilities, the information assurance. Uh, I'd also mention here the need for an enterprise architecture. So we are, in fact, required by statute, part of the creation of ICCIO, said that we are required to develop and implement an enterprise architecture. We have been doing that as statutorily required. We have perhaps not been leveraging it, I think, to the maximum extent possible. We haven't been using it as much as I think we could 
to really drive our technical and investment decisions. And so that's something that we've started to look at over the last few months uh, in partnership with the CIOs. And uh, that's something I'm talking to John about, and I believe he'll continue to uh, to bring that forward and to accelerate it. And I know that that's also an issue that um, Sue Gordon, I've talked to her about it, and she feels very strongly. And then the other piece that you didn't mention that I'll bring up is the old insider threat. You know that that has been a major priority, not just for the intelligence community, but for the entire government. I know with some recent challenges, there's been a renewed effort around insider threat. So from the CIO's perspective, the chair you sit in, what's been happening to, again, protect and safeguard data, but of course make it available to those who are, have, have the right roles and responsibilities. So the DNI and the Attorney General are co-chairs of the National Insider Threat Task Force, and it's ODNI's National Counterintelligence and Security Center that oversees the NITTF. The task force is developing a government-wide program, not just the IC, to deter, detect, and mitigate insider threats across the entire executive branch. Uh, so the task force, they provide policy and guidance, training and assistance. They conduct independent assessments of agencies' insider threat programs. And this is all in an effort to prevent damage to our national security and to protect our people. Does that flow down to you as the CIO within the intelligence community? Or is it just it, it becomes part of what you do when, from a cybersecurity perspective when you, when you step back broadly? I would say that... Some, one of the benefits that we have already been realizing from EyeSight is that we've got much greater insight and transparency into the shared space than we ever had before. So it makes it easier for us to be able to detect things. We've talked a lot about current programs. We've talked a lot about priorities that, that your John Charman, the next, uh, hopefully, uh, CIO of the IC will, will inherit. What challenges is he going to inherit, too? I mean, when you step back and look at all the, the accomplishments that you've seen over the last 10 or 12 years, there's some things that you still probably go, well, I wish we could ad address that issue, too. So first among the challenges, I would say we've talked about how IT has to be agile today. But the problem is many of our processes and the policies for procuring and managing our IT, they are the last thing they are is agile. Um, some of our acquisition processes assume that you can take months or years to gain a capability. And now, of course, it's out of date. So what we've been doing is really working closely with our acquisition leaders in the IC and DOD, that's critical, and increasingly trying to buy services rather than hardware. Again, we have to focus on what capability we need and not how it is delivered. So I think that's still one of our big challenges is that we're thinking in terms of agile, and industry certainly is, but if we let ourselves be bogged down with the paperwork that's in place for a different time, we are never going to be able to keep up. I would say another challenge, uh, data management is a huge issue. Not exactly um, IT, but inextricably linked. Um, so we have an IC chief data officer on board now, and most of the agencies have chief data officers. They have formed a chief data officer council, and they have drafted a data strategy for the IC information environment. Their goal is to make IC data more discoverable, accessible, and usable at the speed of mission. I would say when we get together at either the CIO's level or the agency deputy's level to talk about the biggest challenges we have to information sharing and to being better integrated, it almost always comes down to data. How do we share it? How do we secure it and safeguard it? How do we mingle it with other data to come up with new realizations? How do we decide how to handle it when a lot of our policies were developed when data would be one piece of paper and not endless amounts of, of information that no human could ever go through. It also makes it more critical than ever that we leverage the capabilities that we're bringing to bear with EyeSight because GovCloud is what will ena enable us to make sense of big data. 
Uh, and with that, we will not be able to, with the influx of data that we have coming in with um, commercial satellites and with um, open source media, there is no way we can continue to do our work the way we've done it before and be able to make sense of it all. We've talked about the need to accelerate migration and adoption of eyesight services, and part of that is debunking the urban myths and fears that are out there sometimes about what cloud and shared services can do, what data they can handle. We need to ensure folks can trust our ability to, to secure and safeguard their data. Jennifer, this has been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I know we could probably speak a little longer, but I'd like to thank my guest, Jennifer Crone, the Acting Chief Information Officer of the Intelligence Community, and I should say the outgoing one. So thank you so much for your time today, and obviously thank you for your service, and uh, good luck in Australia. Thank you so much. As I had noted before, I had never thought of myself that someday I would be in a CIO-type role, but I believe so strongly in integration of the intelligence community, and I believe there's been nowhere I could have spent my last two years that would have a bigger impact on the IC long-term and on its ability to meet its mission needs than here, trying to make eyesight a reality, make data as an IC asset a reality. So that's going to be, uh, I feel like I'll continue to carry the torch forward down under, but it will be hard to step back from the day-to-day -day here. Uh, fortunately, I know I've got a great team here and a fabulous successor coming in in the form of John Sherman. We have to take a break. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this final segment of the show, we hear an excerpt from an interview Sue Gordon, the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, did with Tish Long at the AFCIA Inside National Security Summit in Washington earlier this month. We had a panel earlier this morning about acquisition reform. Yep. And we actually just heard the directors of the agencies talk a little right. about that. And in fact, Kevin Miners was a part of that panel. And he coined, I believe Kevin coined this. Of course he did. CRTC, cost realism technically credible, as opposed to say LPTA. Yeah. What can be done from the DNI's perspective on truly getting to agile acquisition? or streamlining the, the acquisition system? Uh, three things, clarity of mission. What are we trying to accomplish? Uh, I know we like to beat on the, the mechanisms we have, but there are many mechanisms if you know what you want to do and you can articulate that clearly. So I think one of the things that the DNI can do is to add and ensure that we are incredibly clear about where we must go in order to achieve the future. The second thing is an environment where new capabilities can be added more quickly. I'm not going to talk a lot about eyesight, but the imperatives of having a place where we can insert capabilities quickly, securely, and bring them to mission quick is another thing that I think the DNI can do, because again, it's that providing the foundation for collective effort that I think we can do. And then the third thing is to, to really work on the issue of risk. It, it still feels that we acquire things as though those are going to be the things that are going to last forever, and so we better make sure that we have it right. In my estimation, we have to be right enough because things are so moving so quickly that if you know software and hardware solutions change in six months to a year and it takes us two years to get something together, so we simply have to be more thoughtful about the risks that we're introducing. And again, I think this is something the DNI can do to help level set 
what we're willing to accept by the processes that we, by and large, set the standard for. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt from an interview Sue Gordon, the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, did with Tish Long at the FCA INSA National Security Summit in Washington earlier this month. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 